My name is Alan Carr. I'm pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. Thank you for visiting our webpage and for taking the time to listen to one of our sermons. We hope this sermon, which was preached in our pulpit, will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God. I want you to take your Bibles and go back to Genesis 37. I've preached out of those verses the last couple times we've talked about the life of Jacob. And before I leave them, there's something I want to say about them. And uh, really not so much about them, but kind of uh, about the life of Jacob in general. Because there's a principle here that I see at work in his life that I see at work in your life and mine. And um, it's just a fact of life. When I see this in him, I see it more so in you, some of you, than in me. But it is there, at least at times. But you'll figure out what it is in just a minute. Genesis 37, and uh, we've read this twice already in our Sunday evening service, so just kind of keep your seat tonight, and uh, I'll read this, and you just follow along. Genesis 37, verse number 31. Now, you know what's happening here. Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery, and they're trying to deceive their father to explain why their younger brother is missing. And it says in verse 31, they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found, know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. Now watch what he does. Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his sons many days. Prolonged mourning. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Again, I would remind you, those boys are hypocrites. They know where Joseph is. They know what's happened to him. They know they've deceived their father. And they could do something to help him in this time of grief. But to protect themselves and cover their lie, they don't. But it says they rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. We'll stop there. It's been said, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that into each life some rain must come. And we all know how true that is. That is a very true statement. All of us have seen those times in life when life was good, life was fun. Sunny days and wonderful times. And During those good times of life, it seems like everything's going our way. And we like that, don't we? We don't really like it, however, when the weather changes and the rains of affliction and of trouble fall in our lives and bring with them floods of pain and despair. But into each life, some rain must come. That's just a fact. But life has a way of breaking us down, doesn't it? Life has a way of kicking the props out from under us, from defeating us, devastating us, destroying us. I mean, sometimes we think we're riding this wave of success, 
when all of a sudden that wave collapses and we find ourselves slammed into the jagged rocks of reality and we see this pattern repeated all around us. I see it in some of your lives. I've seen it over the years and you've seen that happen in my family. We know what that's like. People prosper and then they suffer. People succeed and then they fail. People rise and then they fall. Life is hard. And nobody stays on top forever. Into every life some rain must fall. We all hate suffering. I hate it with all my heart. I hate it to experience it. And I hate to see it in the lives of other people. I don't like it. But suffering is a wonderful teacher. Because life is all fun and games when everything is going well. And a lot of times we learn very little during our times of success, but failure is a wonderful teacher. And anybody, anybody who has been through a bankruptcy, anybody who's been through a divorce, anybody who has lost a job or who has watched a loved one die or been through some other tragedy has learned some hard lessons about life. And anyone who has been through the dark days of life when the minutes seem like hours, has learned something of what life is all about. It's in the days of suffering that we learn the most. Now, Jacob, this man we've been talking about for quite a while now, he had his share of pain and suffering. I mean, Jacob had a lot of difficulty in his life. In fact, he learned some hard lessons about his life in the school of suffering. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight is the school of suffering. Because at least six times, Jacob was sent down to the school of suffering. And while he was there, he learned lessons about life, he learned lessons about himself, and he learned lessons about God. And these lessons helped develop him into the man he eventually became. And each time Jacob enrolled in the school of suffering, his enrollment came unannounced, it came unwanted, it came unexpected. Yet, each time Jacob went through the school of suffering, he persevered in his faith, and he graduated a better man than he had been before he enrolled. Jacob learned lessons like Job learned, where Job, in the midst of his pain, said about God, He knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's how we earn our degrees. That's how we grow in the Lord, is by going through pain and suffering. Now today I want to explore Jacob's time in the school of suffering. I want to talk to you about his spiritual education. And as we talk about Jacob, I want to, to look at yourself. And you wonder why, why in the world do we need to hear something like this? I, we need to hear it because every one of us eventually enrolls in the school of suffering. If you've not been there yet, the first day of class is coming, trust me. You're going to go there. You're going to know what it is to hurt you're going to know what it is to suffer. You're going to know what it is to go through times of difficulty. And the fact is, nobody is exempt. Nobody tests out. Nobody can transfer it to another school because into each life, some rain must fall. I've only got two thoughts I want to share tonight, and we're going to kind of just do a quick overview of Jacob's life and then make some application to us, and I'll be dumb. It'll probably take me forever to get there. You know how I am. But I want to visit the school of suffering with Jacob, and I want to show you what happened to him, just remind you, and then show you how it applies to us. Notice Jacob's grief. Now, you see that grief pictured in the verses we've read. Jacob is brokenhearted 
over the loss of Joseph. He is inconsolable. He has it in his mind that Joseph has been devoured by evil beasts and his sons do nothing to assuage his grief. They do nothing to disabuse him of this false notion he has about the demise of Joseph. But Jacob is a broken-hearted man. And six times, as I said, he enrolled in the school of suffering. And each of those times, they came against him in rapid succession. They came against him in relationship to his family. They involved his daughter. They involved his father. They involved his wife, his oldest son, and his favorite son. Every one of these tragedies struck close to home, and every one was a personal tragedy. So let's just take a minute and walk through these six visits Jacob made to the school of suffering. And you can turn to the Scriptures if you want to. I'll point out some along the way, but mostly just going to give you a quick overview and then move on to some application. There was the tragedy of of rape and murder. You remember this story from Genesis chapter 34, where Jacob settles his family near the Canaanite town of Shechem. While he's there, his daughter Dinah, intrigued by the... Women of the land decide she's going to go out and visit them. While she's out there, she encounters a young man by the name of Shechem, who was uh, the son of Hamor, who was the king of the Hivites. And while uh, Shechem is with Dinah, he rapes her. And then he basically holds her prisoner, asking for her hand in marriage. He's fallen in love with her in this process. Well, you know the story. Her brothers hear about this and to uh, revenge their sister's rape. They, they trick the townsmen into being circumcised. Then when they're at their sorest, they go in and attack the town, kill all the men and the boys, and take the women and the children hostage, and they are slaves, rather, and they plunder the town. It's a terrible scene. This whole thing is bad. And nobody in that chapter comes out looking good. When Jacob finds out what his sons have done, instead of being outraged at their action and condemning them out of hand for what they've done, he says in Genesis 34:30, "Ye have troubled me." He's afraid that their actions is going to bring him trouble, that the Canaanites will turn on him. And he, he responds to them by saying, "This is all about me." They respond back to him saying, well, uh, should he deal with our sister as with a harlot? They say he treated her like a prostitute and we're avenging the way he's handled her. And so both sides felt like they were right. Nobody comes out looking good. But there is a lesson, I think, to take to heart here before I move away from this. And it's just to remind us that all of this happened because Jacob settled his family too close to the pagan Canaanite. Had he never settled his family there, there never would have been the rape. There never would have been the slaughter. There never would have been all this tension brought into the family. Every bit of this can be laid at Jacob's feet. Ladies and gentlemen, our mandate from God, from the Lord, is to be in the world, but not of the world. We have to be here to let the to let the light of Christ shine to a lost and dying world. That's why He leaves us here as His ambassadors. But when the world gets in us, we're in a bad place. And our light has no power to shine when we become corrupt like the world. That's why John tells us that we're not to love the world because if any man loved the world, he said, the love of the Father is not in us. And we have to be careful that we don't camp too close to the enemy. 
and bring, bring trouble into our lives and into the lives of our family. We would do well to learn that lesson before tragedy strikes. Many families have raised their kids too close to the Canaanites and they've paid a high price for that. They've seen their children go that way and they look around and say, I wonder why this happened. We tried to raise them right. Really? You shouldn't have raised them too close to the pagans. You should have, you should have shown them that line of demarcation. You should have said, this is the boundary. We don't go there. We don't do this and kept them away from that. But sometimes as parents, we don't. We think we're giving them the best when we give them the world and many times we're giving them the worst. But there is that tragedy and a lot of that is Jacob's fault. Then you move into chapter 35. On the heels of that, there's a tragedy of repeated deaths and funerals. And I know some of this is a recap for us. After Jacob leaves Shechem, he moves his family back into, uh, into the promised land where God told him to be. He gets back to Bethel. When he gets there, he builds an altar. He worships God, orders his family to get rid of all their pagan idols. They've accumulated along the way. That's a good thing, isn't it? And after he does that, God again speaks to him, reaffirming all the promises he had made to Abraham and to Isaac. God promises to bless him. He promises that kings will come from him. He promises to give him the land. All of these are God's way of saying, Jacob, you're not perfect, but you're mine. I've chosen you, and I've not changed my mind about you, and I'm going to keep working on you, and I'm going to bless you. And that's a moment of great spiritual victory for Jacob. I mean, Jacob must feel like he's back on top of the mountain. He's ascended out of that valley of suffering, and he's standing triumphant in the blessings of God. But then tragedy strikes. One after the other, in rapid succession, there are three funerals that happen in Jacob's life. First, his mother's nurse, Deborah, dies. She was a connection with his childhood. He was close to her growing up always a part of his life, she dies. Then Rachel dies, giving birth to their youngest son, Benjamin. I mean, the love of his life. This woman that he had worked all those years to win as his wife, she dies and he buries her at Bethlehem, erecting a pillar over her grave. And then after that, his father dies. Isaac, 180 years old, he was living at Hebron when he died, but he died. The Bible says about him, and I love this, it says that Isaac gave up the ghost and he died and said, was gathered unto his people being old and full of days. I like that little phrase, gathered unto his people. That's one of the first glimpses you have in the Bible of this promise of life after death. Gathered unto his people. It's the Bible's way of saying he went where they are. Isaac went to be where Abraham was. He went to be where Adam was. He went to be where the forerunners were. And, you know, this is a sad day. His father has died. The baton has passed from, from Isaac down to Jacob. This is the last time he and his brother Esau will ever be together. And I just want to say there's nothing really profound in this. There's nothing really deep in all of these funerals and all of these scenes of dying and death. But it, there is a solemn reminder that death is a part of life. We do a lot in our modern age to insulate and isolate ourselves from death, don't we? We don't want to be around it. Everything has become so sanitized. 
A lot of children are never exposed to death and dying, and they don't know what it means. I mean, you know, just as soon as uh, maybe a short time ago, as 50 or 100 years ago, things were different. Death was a common part of life. Everybody understood, even small children understood, death is coming for all of us. And I think sometimes by shielding our children and protecting them from the image of death, we do them a disservice because they need to know that death is coming and they need to prepare themselves to meet death and to face the death of those they love. But the fact is, if you live long enough in this world, you're going to attend a lot of funerals. And if you live into your 80s and 90s, chances are you're going to bury most of the people you know. I was thinking about that today. They, uh, Benny and Clara brought in that picture. And we tried to date it this morning, Calvary Baptist Church. Some of y'all saw that a long time ago back in the old building. And Brother Charles Kincaid dated that for us when he told us where he was sitting. He showed us himself there, said he was 10 years old in that picture. And it was 1948. I looked at that picture, and I didn't know many folk on there. I think I found Ruby Hall. I may have found Charlotte Goble. I mean, there's a few folk I think I could pick out, I think. But the fact is, nearly everybody in that picture is dead. Nearly, that's 69 years ago. Nearly every one of them has passed on, and they've been gathered unto their people. They're not here. They're there. And we've got to be prepared for that. We've got to understand that if we live long enough, death is coming for the people we care about. I may have told you this in the past. I'm sure I have, but when I was preaching up in... Uh, Burke County, I used to go to Autumn Care Nursing Home in Marion every Tuesday morning and have Bible study. Did it for seven or eight years, and there was an old gentleman there, his name was Clayton Stamey. And Clayton was over 100 when I met him, and he died when he was 106, but Clayton was over 100 years old when I met him. He was in seemingly good health. He had a good mind. He stood straight and tall. He fed himself. He dressed himself. He was articulate. I mean, just seemed like he had everything going on. And one day I asked Mr. Stamey, I said, why are you even here? I said, you don't seem to have any physical problems. You have no mental issues. Why are you here? He said, I've buried three wives. He said, I've buried all my children. He said, I've buried everybody I was close to, and I got tired of being alone. I came here to have some friends. I thought, that is a downside of living a long, long life. He lived to be 106, but he was a lonely man because he had outlived everybody. He had attended funeral after funeral after funeral. But this, this passage reminds us, I think, that you and I are not going to live forever. One of these days, death is coming for us, and we need to be ready. Barring the return of Christ, every one of us, is going to die. Nobody's getting out of here alive. If they took a picture of this congregation tonight and hang it on the wall in 69 years, none of us are going to be here. That's just the way it is. We're going to die. We're going to leave here. We're going to meet God, and we need to be ready. Then in chapter 35, on the heels of that tragedy, in verses 21 and 22, we didn't read this and didn't preach about this as we went through because I just didn't feel like it added much at the time. But you have this betrayal by Reuben. Now in that passage, Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, he has sexual relations with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. And Jacob knows about this, but he doesn't confront the issue at the time. It seems to be an open family secret. Everybody knows about it, but nobody's talking about it. Reuben disgraced his father by taking this woman with whom Jacob had had two sons, and he took her as 
his mistress. And many years passed, and nothing is ever said about it. And perhaps many thought Jacob had forgotten about it, but ladies and gentlemen, he did not forget about it. In his later years, while he's lying on his deathbed, Jacob brings that up. We'll get to it when we come to chapter 49. But I'll tell you what he does just by just, just quickly. He talks about how Reuben is his firstborn. He talks about uh, how, that he has the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. And then he talks about how unstable and unpredictable Reuben is. And in one minute, Jacob goes from praising his firstborn to tearing him down when he says, Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. And he looks around on the others and he said, He defiled my couch. And basically what Jacob does is he takes away Reuben's right to be the firstborn, the head of the family upon his father's death. And he demotes him and he takes him all the way down to the bottom. But do you understand how that must have hurt Jacob? His, his own son doing that to him. That is a tragedy of enormous proportions. And many of us know what that's like. we not necessarily the same exact circumstances. But we know what it's like when sexual sin invades our families. And it's a hard thing. It is devastating when somebody you have devoted yourself to turns on you and they, they go away from you. And then you have the sixth trip you made here in Genesis 37. We've already touched on this, and that's the tragedy of terrible loss in that Joseph is gone. His brothers trick their father. They trick their brother. They sell their brother into slavery, and they tell their father that he's dead. There's a terrible irony in this story. If you remember many years before when Jacob deceived his father Isaac to steal Esau's birthright. He took him the meat of a goat and to pretend like it was venison, right? And now his sons deceive him with the blood of a goat. Just another sign and place where Jacob reaped what he sowed. You don't get away with sin, folk. You don't get away with it. There's always a day when you're going to pay. But I think you would agree with me that this man suffered. I mean, you think about what he went through. His daughter is raped. His sons slaughter a whole town. Deborah dies. Rachel dies. Isaac dies. Reuben sleeps with his concubine. And now uh, Joseph is taken away. And all of this combined to break his heart. And one reason that he wept and he said, I'll go down into my grave unto my son mourning is not just for Joseph, but it's the accumulated weight of all of this that has been piled on top of him. And life's like that sometimes. I shared with the men in the prayer room this morning about a little girl who was in Bible school this week. I told you this morning we had 12 children stay. 11 didn't understand about sin and salvation. We dismissed them, but one little girl stayed. Brother Philip was in here with me when I talked to her. And what she told me broke my heart. When you're 10 years old, what are you supposed to be doing? If you're a 10-year-old girl, I've never been one of those, but I would suspect at 10 years old, you like to play outside. You like to ride your bike. You like to maybe play with your dolls. I don't know what, maybe pretend with makeup and fixing your hair and playing dress-up and all that little girl stuff, right? That little 10-year-old girl sat right there in the corner of that pew, and she told me, she said, I've got a problem. And I said, what's the problem? And she basically, to paraphrase, she said, I want to know what's wrong with me. 
She said, my father abandoned me when I was a baby. What's wrong with me that my father would abandon me? I'll tell you what I told her. I told her there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with him. He was either immature, not ready to be a father, whatever. But whatever reason, he just couldn't do what he needed to do. Couldn't take that responsibility. The problem's not with you. The problem's with him. And I thought as she told me that, you know, that's heartbreaking. A 10-year-old child should not have to carry that weight upon their shoulders. They should not have to wonder what's wrong with them. They should not have to uh, struggle with their self-worth and their self-confidence, wondering if there's something, uh, something missing in their life because their own father didn't have time to be a dad to her. That's the kind of weight people carry. And there are folk in this room who carry weights that, that are hard to bear. And you know what you struggle with. It's part of living in this world. And Jacob, I think, identifies us with that. He connects us to that and makes us remember those things that sometimes life is hard. And into each life, some rain must fall. That's what Job meant when he said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. It's just going to happen. It's, it's part of living here. It's unfortunate. Job also said, as the sparks fly upward, so man is born to adversity. Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. He could as well have said, in this world you're going to be enrolled in the school of suffering and you're going to have some hard lessons. You're going to go through some hard things while you're here. That's Jacob's grief. But I want to touch on a second thought, kind of way of application to us. Talk to you about Jacob's gift. When we think of Jacob and what he endured, how do you process that? How do you process all of this happening in one man's life? Do we conclude that he must be somebody like Job who was chosen to suffer extraordinary uh, suffering and go through extraordinary difficulties as God's way of just kind of giving us something to read a few thousand years later. Well, I don't think that's all there is to it. I don't think it's all about them. I think it's about us too. Now, we would all agree that Jacob, in many ways, was just a man like, like us, a human like us. He struggled in a lot of the ways you and I struggle. But what I want to ask you tonight, what can we learn from his tragedies? Well, I think one thing we miss sometimes when we think about suffering, is we miss the idea that in Jacob's life and in ours, all of these tragedies became a gift from God. Because through heartache and sorrow, his life was shaped and developed by the Lord. His trials became a gift from God in that they were used by God to shape him into the man he eventually became. And we may not see our trials as a gift, but they are. And God gives us weight to carry. He gives us valleys to go through, rivers to ford, dark, dark nights to endure, and all of that in order to help us become more like Him. Now, I want to share just a couple points of application. Because I know that a lot of our people here struggle. A lot of them have difficulties that I can't even begin to imagine. And while you may not believe me, it may turn out that some of those things you deal with the most will turn out to be the most significant blessings in your life. Let me just give you a couple thoughts. 
First, everyone enrolls in the school of suffering. I've already touched on this, but into each life some rain must come. Whether you like it or not, you're going to school. I remember when they sent me to school for the first time. Now, back in those days, we didn't have a kindergarten. We just went to first grade and just took off, you know. We didn't have that little special time in the front. And I remember that first day of school, and it was pretty traumatic for me. I didn't like it. I was used to, well, be honest, I was a spoiled brat, and I was used to getting my way. And I didn't like going where somebody told me what to do all day. I just didn't like it, and I remember that day. I did not like it, and I never did get over it until I got out 12 years later. But that's another story. But you and I are going to have to enroll in the school of suffering. We're going to have to go there, and we're going to have to endure much. And I'll tell you, the Bible says in Acts 14, 22, and this is the disciples on confirming the souls of disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that, listen, that we must through tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. God is going to send us through difficulty in order to shape us. Nobody is exempt from it. Now, if you watch enough TBN, you might think somehow that that's not true. If you listen to Joel Osteen and guys like him, all they're going to tell you are the good things about, about God and about being a Christian, about how wonderful it is and how God's got to bless you and God's got to do this for you and God's got to give you all this good stuff. fact, the matter is, before you get out of here, God's going to let you hurt. And God's going to let you hurt bad. Sometimes your heart's going to break. Sometimes the load is going to be heavier than you can carry. Sometimes your lessons are going to seem impossibly frustrating to you. And you may wonder why you got to take this class. But God has sent you there and everybody enrolls in the school of suffering like it or not. Something else I'll tell you about it. Everybody learns in the school of suffering. Now, can you think back on your school days? Can you remember some classes where you learned things and some where you didn't? I can think about some I had where I didn't learn anything. I remember a class in Bible college where our our professor came in and all all he did for a whole year was read to us out of the textbook. I can read. I could read before I got there. I don't need this guy to sit up there and read to me, teach me something, lecture to me, show me something, help me grow. Don't read to me. Assign to me the reading. I'll do the reading, but don't bore me to death. I got nothing out of that class. Absolutely nothing. I feel like it was a waste of my time and a waste of his time. But I can honestly say I've never attended a class in the school of suffering where I came away with less knowledge than when I went in. God's always taught me something, whether it's about Him or about myself or about life in general. And why does God do that? I think God does it because He knows that when we suffer, we have to slow down and we have to think and we have to slow down and listen. We have to look up and begin to learn. We have to pull aside from the fast pace of our lives and learn things about God in those classes He sends us to that we can learn nowhere else. I mean, there are lessons you learn in the school of suffering that you can't get on the mountaintop of blessing. And often it is God's tool that He uses to get our attention, to slow us down, to focus us on Him and help us grow and develop us. I mean, hey man, Elijah, he learned about God's promises down at a brook and at a widow's house. 
The widow learned about provision when she gave away the last of her meal. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learned about God's presence in the, uh, the presence of God in the fiery furnace. And Daniel learned about the power of God in the lion's den. The disciples learned about the person of God in their storm. There are lessons that can be learned no other way, and God sends us there because He is determined to teach us. On the heels of that, a third point of application is that everyone is developed in the school of suffering. Everybody is developed. You know, ancient times when they would harvest wheat, that wheat had to be prepared for consumption. And one of the things the ancients did was they would use an instrument called a tribulum to beat the wheat. They would take the tribulum and they would strike the wheat and they would crush those shells and they would break them open. And then they would take a fan and they would toss those that, that whole mass up into the air and the wind would blow away the chaff and the heavier wheat would fall back to the ground. We get our word tribulation from the word tribulum. And the Bible tells us that tribulation has the power to separate the chaff from the wheat in the human character. How does God purify us? How does God grow us? God does it by applying the tribulum. God does it sometimes through pain and through suffering and through heartbreak and heartache. That's why Romans 5.3 says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. God develops us in our times of difficulty. I don't know if you ever watched them fire pottery or fire china. When they prepare those plates or bowls or vases or whatever they're doing, they'll paint them up prior to putting them in the furnace. And when they paint them, all the colors are dull. I mean, all the colors are ugly. They'll put that black on there and they'll put that uh, dull blue, these odd-looking colors, dirty-looking red, bluish blacks. But when they put that in the fire and that fire glazes that pottery, something amazing happens. Sometimes that black will come out as gold as it can be. The reds will come out vibrant and, and, and almost shining, and the blues will pop off the pottery. And that's what God does. God takes His choicest saints, and He puts them into the fiery trials of life. And what seems to be dark colors on this side will on that side come forth as the brightest colors of the rainbow. God knows what He's doing. And this thing does not end when you and I come out of our suffering. It ends somewhere down the road. And what appears to be common earthenware going through common earthly tribulation will be transformed eventually into the very image of Jesus Christ. What did God tell us? All things work together for good to them that know God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And what's His purpose? Because God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son. I've got to be changed before I get there. I've already been changed in here. Part of me has already been made new. But there's a part of me that still clings to the old life. It's called my flesh. And the only way for God to beat the flesh loose, to break it open and separate it from the wheat, is to apply the tribulum. God has to use tribulation to get my attention, to develop me and to grow me and to make me what I should be. I'll say this as well. Everybody's loved 
in the school of suffering. I had teachers along the way, and you probably did too. I figured they hated my guts. You ever have a teacher like that? I had some of them had me marked out. I remember my second grade teacher, Miss Johnson. Bless her heart, I know. It's all my fault, wasn't her. Man, she is a big lady. Of course, when you're seven years old, I mean, you know, little bitty feller. And this great old big woman, every day she's taking me out, and she is wearing me out. I mean, she whipped me every day of the second grade. That was my experience. We moved after second grade, went to another school, a school my mom and daddy went to, and I go in there, and the first day I'm assigned to Miss Bell Henderson's class. And I go in there, and Miss Henderson's calling the roll, and she gets to my name, and she calls my name, and she stops, and she looks at me over her glasses from out from under this great old big beehive hairdo. She looks at me, and she says, Is your daddy Don Carr? I said, Yes, ma'am. She said, I'll be watching you. And, buddy, she did. All year long, another year of trouble and tribulation for a young boy. And I wondered if Miss Henderson even liked me, you know. I should have asked her. She, she lived to be about 110. She just died a couple years ago. Mean people don't ever die young. <laughs> I'm kidding about that. But sometimes in our moments of pain and sorrow, we may think God has forgotten about us and that God doesn't care about us. But the truth of the matter is, God still loves us even when our marriage breaks up. God still loves us even when our career takes a a downhill slide. God loves us when you wind up in jail. God loves you when your spouse has an affair. God loves you still when the doctor said, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more I can do. God still loves us. And if you're a parent, you know how that works. I mean, can you think of a single scenario in which you would stop loving your child? Would you still love your daughter if she came home pregnant? Would you still love your son if, 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 if the police brought him home drunk? Would, would you still love your child regardless of what they did? Sure you would. You might have to apply tough love every now and then. You might have to do some things to kind of put them in tribulation. But you know what I'm talking about. And the fact is, even if we suffer, and we will suffer, Paul makes it clear, who shall, when he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or persecution, or rather our peril, or nakedness, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And one final point of application. God loves us through it all. But everybody who goes in the school of suffering graduates with honors. If you go to college and you make good grades, you might graduate cum laude, which means with honor. You might graduate magna cum laude, which means high honor. But if you're really good, you might graduate summa cum laude, which means highest honor. And God has a plan for you. God's plan is that you graduate the school of suffering with a summa cum laude, that you get highest honors in His school. The courses are not easy. The teachers sometimes are cruel. The assignments get progressively harder as you take the courses, and not everybody makes it. Some folk get stuck as a freshman, and they never get out. Others get angry, and they quit. But for those who stay in school, 
They'll graduate with highest honors. Now, the scene is heaven. The time is somewhere beyond tomorrow. Multitudes have gathered in for a commencement ceremony. Friends and family eagerly await for the graduates to, for the ceremony to begin, the graduates to be called. An angelic concert, they sing glory to God in the highest. A massive choir comprised of tens and hundreds of thousands of voices rise to sing, crown him with many crowns. In come the dignitaries, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's Moses and there's Joshua and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. There's James and Peter and John. Then there are the, the martyrs, those who gave everything because they loved Jesus. Hundreds and thousands strong, they march in one by one. Then at last a voice cries, all rise. And in comes Jesus Himself, clothed in pure white, dazzling in His beauty. And look! He's smiling. This is the day He's been waiting for. And now the names are called. One by one. Capitola Watson. With highest honor. Linda Robbins. With highest honor. Nona Nelson. With highest honor. Mike Goals. With highest honor. You understand? Russell Crowell. With highest honor. Mike Crump, with highest honor. Those who have suffered here, those who have struggled here. Randy Laws, with highest honor. Jeff Watson, with highest honor. And on and on they come, the bright saints of God who walked through valleys here, who went through suffering here, who knew what it was to suffer in sickness and broken dreams, abandonment and forgottenness. But God knows what they've done. God knows what they've been through. And God knows what He has accomplished in their lives. And He never forgot them. Not for a single moment. He stored it all up. And now He welcomes them into their eternal reward. And my, I'm going to be there on that day. And I'd like to hear my name called among that number with highest honor. Is it possible? Yes. Thank God school doesn't last forever. One day we get out, and when we get out, we go home. And in the end, nobody regrets what they went through here when they get over there. When you walk out of here tonight, pass by the water fountain. Look at that picture hanging up there. Look at those couple hundred people that are in that picture. Most of them are dead and gone. They're not here. If they knew Jesus, they're there. And if you could interview any one of them tonight and ask them, was it worth it? They would say, oh yes, it was worth it and 10,000 times is worse because I'm here. It's worth it all to go to school. And in that day, the blackest moments will be transformed into eternal light. And you and I are going to shine like the sun. I'll be glad when school's out. Won't you? I'll be glad when I can graduate forever and go home. I'm ready. I'm homesick. And I'm tired of seeing people hurt.
tired of it. But that's life in this world. Just ask anybody, they'll tell you. Life hurts. Ask that little 10-year-old girl who told me that. She knows, even at that age, life hurts. The fact is, she's 10 now. One day when she's 50 or 60, that same pain will still be in her heart. She'll always wonder, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's God going to do that? I don't know. If she meets Jesus someday, if she comes to faith in God, God may transform that pain into a time of celebration and victory for her. God may give her some kind of insight into that that helps her. But I guarantee you, as long as she lives, there will be moments of doubt. There will be times of confusion. There will be days of wonder where she asks herself, What is wrong with me? I hope she meets Jesus so someday she can stand before Him and He can say, There never was anything wrong with you that I couldn't fix. And I fixed it. School's out. And you're home. Graduated with highest honors. You have been listening to a sermon from Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to visit our webpage today and to listen to our sermon. Please check back often for new content. We'd love to have you visit with us at Calvary Baptist Church. The church is located at 1369 Blowing Rock Boulevard Northwest in Lenore, North Carolina. Our Sunday morning worship begins at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and Wednesday night at 7 p.m., and you would be welcome at any of our services. Thanks again for listening, and may the Lord bless you is our prayer.